Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hi everyone out there today, Steve here with a special announcement for you from Richard Lim, host of the podcast, This American President. Richard is a fellow member of the Parthenon Podcast Network. Some remember Dwight D. Eisenhower's presidency as a time of peace, prosperity, but in reality, it was an era of constant global crises. In this episode preview from This American President, host Richard Lim explores how Eisenhower skillfully navigated the perils of the Cold War. This American President is a fantastic podcast, and I highly recommend you follow the links in the show notes to learn how to listen and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Now, there were several things that happened during Eisenhower's last couple of years in office. Secretary of State Dulles's health declined. His cancer had spread. And on May 1959, he died. Just a few months later, Ike's old mentor, George Marshall, died as well. In a short period of time, Eisenhower had lost the two men that perhaps did more to shape his military and presidential careers. Also, a communist regime took over in Cuba led by Fidel Castro. He soon began befriending many of America's communist enemies and imposing a dictatorship on the island. Some of Eisenhower's critics felt that he had allowed the communists to get a foothold on the island, a dangerous situation considering Cuba was so close to American shores. But there was one specific instance that defined those last couple of years. Now, another four-power summit was being planned for Paris in May of 1960, As you will recall, a previous one was held in Geneva in 1955 where Eisenhower proposed his Open Skies Initiative, which was rejected by the Soviets. Well, Eisenhower decided to give another summit a chance. Again, the British, French, and Soviets would be attending. Since Eisenhower was near the end of his presidency, he was in legacy mode. He was working with the British to forge a treaty banning nuclear tests and hoped Khrushchev would join in. He had engaged in brinksmanship throughout his presidency, but if he could get a treaty among the world powers, he could add to his legacy of being a peacemaker. But an incident would happen that would destroy those hopes. For years, Eisenhower had approved aerial spy missions over the Soviet Union. 
U-2 spy planes were flying high above the Soviet Union, where the CIA promised they would not be shot down by Russian defenses. These missions gave America intelligence on Russian military capabilities and readiness. This all related back to Eisenhower's fears about defense spending. Those who advocated for increased spending would claim that the Soviets were way ahead of the United States in military capability, especially in terms of bombers. If Eisenhower could get intelligence that proved America was way ahead, he could ward off those who wanted more spending. That's why he approved the U-2 flights. The intelligence gleaned from the flights did confirm his hunch that America was way ahead in terms of bombers. The Russians knew that these flights were happening and knew that the United States had information about their capabilities. But they didn't want to publicize their knowledge of the flights because it would expose a weakness the inability to prevent Americans from spying right in their airspace. The entire program was a secret to the world. Eisenhower knew that the flights were a huge risk. Sending spy planes over enemy territory was dangerous. They could be shot down, no matter how confident the CIA was. If America was ever caught, it would be an embarrassment, since many felt flying over enemy airspace without the consent of that country was unsavory. And if a plane ever got shot down, it would allow the Soviets to claim it could counter American technology. Due to their sensitive nature, Eisenhower personally approved each flight after a thorough review. One of those missions took off on May 1, 1960. It was flown by pilot Francis Gary Powers, but Powers never returned from the mission. The Eisenhower administration assumed that the plane had crashed and that Powers was dead. To account for the loss, the administration released the cover story that it was a weather plane and that it had oxygen issues. This would lead the public to believe that the pilot had blacked out and accidentally entered Soviet airspace. Unbeknownst to the administration, the Soviets actually had Powers alive in custody and had obtained film from the plane confirming its reconnaissance mission. The plane had been shot down by Soviet defenses. It's possible Khrushchev held all this information back so that the United States would release its cover story and then be caught red-handed. While he was once afraid to disclose Soviet vulnerability, now he savored the chance to humiliate the Americans. Shooting down the plane would show off the Soviets' defensive capabilities and expose a sensitive American secret. Khrushchev hoped that this would increase his leverage with Eisenhower during the impending summit. Well, after the weather plane story was released, Khrushchev announced on May 5, 1960, that the U.S. plane had been shot down. The Americans denied it, believing that the plane was destroyed and the pilot was dead, but that was a fatal assumption. Two days later, Khrushchev finally announced that the Soviets had the pilot alive and well, and the film from the plane. One can only imagine the look on Eisenhower's face when he found out. Let's just say that the CIA was not on his good side after this. One aide recounted that around this time, the president said, quote, I would like to resign. It was a huge embarrassment. The entire incident had blown the lid off one of the most intensely kept secrets of his administration. It exposed an unseemly side of America's national security policies. Critics argued that America was willfully violating the Soviet Union's sovereignty. Also, the entire incident called into question America's capabilities since one of its planes had been shot down. Khrushchev also demanded for an apology. 
Eisenhower could no longer deny that it had happened. He wisely decided to level with the American people, to come clean and admit that it was indeed a spy plane. He argued that the Cold War and Soviet secrecy made missions like these involving the U-2 necessary for the country's security. And he said, quote, No one wants another Pearl Harbor. This means that we must have knowledge of military forces and preparations around the world, especially those capable of massive surprise attack. Secrecy in the Soviet Union makes this essential. In the Soviet Union, there's a fetish of secrecy and concealment. Eisenhower also cited the long history of Soviet spying in the United States. The president maintained that he simply would not apologize. Within days, the summit in Paris began. Khrushchev sat across the table from the Americans, British, and French. He called again and again for an apology, but Eisenhower refused again and again. The president could count on strong support from his British and French allies, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan and Charles de Gaulle. Ultimately, the entire summit collapsed and little was accomplished. Eisenhower left Paris embittered, knowing that his hopes for a test ban treaty were dead. He wrote of Khrushchev that, quote, I leave Paris with, of course, a measure of disappointment because our hopes for taking even a small step toward peace have been dashed by the intransigence and arrogance of one individual. While all of this was going on, the 1960 election was in full swing. Richard Nixon had been a loyal vice president throughout the two terms. He easily got the Republican nomination to succeed Eisenhower. By then, Eisenhower was 69 years old, the oldest man to ever be president, and Nixon was just 47. Not to be outdone, the Democrats nominated the 43-year-old senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. I've been talking about the image of Eisenhower as a passive do-nothing president. Well, JFK would make that image an issue in the campaign. He accused the Eisenhower administration, and by association Vice President Nixon, of standing still during the 1950s. He cited the Soviets' accomplishments in space as a sign that America was lagging behind. He also claimed that there was a missile gap, that we were being outmatched in nuclear and conventional capabilities. And he argued that Eisenhower had allowed the communists to get a foothold in Cuba. As you can imagine, Eisenhower took these criticisms to heart. He knew that if there was a missile gap, it was in America's favor, since it was far ahead of Soviet military capability, especially with nuclear weapons. From Eisenhower's perspective, Kennedy had either gotten bad information or was lying. In fact, under Eisenhower, America's nuclear arsenal went from about 1,000 atomic bombs to about 20,000 total nuclear weapons. And he felt, for the New Look policy, that trying to outmatch the Soviets everywhere was foolish. And he felt that Kennedy was in over his head, that he had some real nerve as an inexperienced junior senator, claiming that he could do Eisenhower's job better than him. Eisenhower said, quote, I'll do anything to avoid turning over my seat and the country to Kennedy. It really irritated Eisenhower when people said that he was passive about national defense. And he said, quote, The idea of them charging me with not being interested in defense. Damn it. I've spent my whole life being concerned with the defense of our country. Unfortunately for the president, JFK's message was resonating. 
A new decade was coming, the 1960s, and Americans were starting to crave energetic leadership. And John F. Kennedy exuded energy and youthful vigor. Let me say first that I accept the nomination of the Democratic Party. I accept it without reservation and with only one obligation. The obligation to devote every effort of my mind and spirit to lead our party back to victory and our nation to greatness. Kennedy's charge that the nation was lying at anchor and drift was a clear criticism, not just of Nixon, but of Eisenhower. Also, it didn't help that Eisenhower unwittingly damaged his chosen candidate's chances. Nixon was largely running on his experience as vice president and his participation in the administration. But when one journalist asked Eisenhower if he had adopted any of Nixon's ideas, he said, quote, If you give me a week, I might think of one. I don't remember. The Kennedy campaign gleefully reminded everyone that Eisenhower seemed to be admitting that Nixon didn't play as big of a role in the administration as he was claiming. That November, JFK defeated Richard Nixon in one of the closest elections in American history. Kennedy would become the 35th president of the United States. Remember when I said second terms are usually rough? Well, it was the same for Eisenhower. Yes, he had had his successes, like in Lebanon. Yes, he had gotten Mao to back down once again in the Taiwan Strait. But the perception that he had been asleep at the wheel, which allowed the Soviets to take the lead in the space race, persisted. And the entire U-2 episode dashed any hopes for a legacy-making peace treaty. And it seemed that with Kennedy's election, the American people were endorsing his view that the country had been standing still. To Eisenhower's critics, his presidency was eight years of drift. After years of holding down the defense budget, preventing what he felt could be national bankruptcy, and getting bogged down in foreign wars, Eisenhower feared that a Kennedy presidency would be a disaster. Kennedy was ambitious, and he opposed massive retaliation in favor of flexible response, which Eisenhower felt might lead to more wars. He lamented, quote, all I've been trying to do for eight years has gone down the drain. But Eisenhower worried about something else. He still believed very much in his policies, especially New Look. He believed that it had kept the peace and allowed for unprecedented prosperity. But he saw that Americans might be abandoning it. He feared that abandoning New Look meant America would turn to deficit spending. He still feared that America would bankrupt itself trying to outmatch the Soviets. He saw the outcry and the call for massive spending after the Soviets launched Sputnik. He also feared that relying less on nuclear weapons would make war more not less likely. He worried that the new and more popular flexible response doctrine would tempt American policymakers to use force, especially since the new president-elect was a supporter of the doctrine. Eisenhower knew that the Cold War meant that things had changed. America couldn't demobilize as it had in years past. But he also worried about what that meant. He worried about the impact government defense spending would have on American society, As he said in his famous speech years earlier, he believed that defense spending had an opportunity cost, that it robbed from American productivity and innovation. 
Eisenhower crafted his farewell address with all of this in mind. It ranks among the most famous by a modern president in history, and is perhaps the most famous farewell address after George Washington's. It was delivered on January 17, 1961, three days before he stepped down from office. The major theme here is balance. Eisenhower knew that in America, in the Cold War, he had to walk a fine line in many ways. He had to maintain fearsome weapons of war in order to preserve the peace. He had been willing to go to the brink of nuclear war, but also was willing to sit down with America's enemies to reduce tensions. The United States had to spend much on weapons, but not too much or else we would bankrupt ourselves. It had to maintain a healthy concern for Soviet expansion and progress without being alarmist. Eisenhower addressed this need for balance in his farewell address. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses, development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research. These and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. Balance between the private and the public economy. Balance between the cost and hoped for advantages. Balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable. Balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual. Balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance in progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. To Eisenhower, maintaining this balance would be critical for the viability of our massive defense effort. But there was more at stake. It wasn't just about spending. Costs weren't limited to just dollars and cents. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend 
its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Now, Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.